Tom, uh, how are you feeling? It's uh, the summer. Oh, how are you feeling? Hot, Pete. Hot, hot, hot. How, are you okay with that? I can live fine with it because I have good air conditioning in my place and I know how to live my life and when I shouldn't be outside. Unfortunately, it's very hard on my dog, Foster. All he wants to do is go on walks and then immediately we go outside and he looks up at me like, what have you done? And he just wants to lay down under a tree. Uh, and so <laughs> what we usually do when it's summer like this is we just have more but shorter walks. We just sort of go around the block instead of our usual 45 minutes hour thing, because otherwise he just melts and it all falls apart. Now, are you walking at this time? <laughs> of course. Walk till I okay. die. <laughs> Here's the thing. And you also have the fires. Do you have the fires yet? Uh, we this is actually Northern California is going through it right now. Is going through uh, it right now. Yes. Yeah. They they drew the early straw. Correct. But we are, yes. Okay. Traditionally we are always on fire. I don't mean to front load uh terrible things that happen in the valley, uh, but I do want to get to how they affect your body and particularly your sinuses, because a recently uh, a published review finds a significant link between hay fever mm. and raised risk of anxiety and depression, particularly in adolescence. They, really? It makes adolescents more impulsive and less resistant to stress, Tom. What is hay fever? I thought hay fever was like smallpox, that we don't really have that. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like something that we would have figured out by now? Hay fever? <laughs> no, it's, uh, it is uh, otherwise called or more scientifically called allergic rhinitis. It's a common condition with symptoms similar to those of a cold. They may be sneezing, congestion, runny nose, and sinus pressure. I get it. I've always called it, you know, allergies, hay fever, but that's what I describe. Sure. And it happens uh, seasonally. Only for about six weeks. I get it. My head is constantly throbbing. I'm not in a good mood. I'm not sleeping well. Oof. I'm a, a generally uh, aggravated uh, individual. <laughs> and it turns out that the connections to uh, stress and anxiety are higher than any have ever seen. Now, this was not a, a discrete study in itself that uh, has been published now in the Annals of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. It was a review of 25 other published studies, mm. and they were interested in how hay fever impacts adolescents' quality of life. Uh, it includes emotional impact, disturbed sleep, and any interference with their schooling. Uh, the the uh, money quote is that we've got to get our handle on how, particularly how adolescents deal with this. If you're a parent and you see that your kids are <laughs> more hostile, impulsive, or they change their minds often now that's a quote that sounds like if they do kids. it sounds like adolescents <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if they start growing hair in weird places right. like okay right. right they have a much higher rate of anxiety and depression and lower resistance to stress particularly under heavy workload and so that ends up being a big deal insofar as it, you are impacted by your allergies in terms of sleep, lack of sleep or mm. poor sleep, you know, adolescents already struggle with sleep right. and they need sleep. But so do adults. If your hay fever is impacting your sleep, that can also be uh, be a, a related impact that can uh, that can drive your anxieties up. Where does the impulsiveness come in? That's the one part that I'm having trouble getting my head around. Because you're uh, generally agitated. You get this feeling. You get agitated. You get oh, kind of sick. You make quick decisions that without you just, thinking. Because you're not as comfortable in yeah. your own head. So you're just like, let's right. just do this. So at least something. Yes. Okay. Got it. 
that's it. So the headline of this stupid study is all about uh, uh, <laughs> all, all about the connection between hay fever uh, and anxiety. But they're really doubling down on adolescence. And I think that may be a mistake because I feel like a teenager every day. Right. Exactly. And we just like to blame everything on teenagers. <laughs> I know, right? They could have really hit a home run if they just replaced teenager with millennial. That would have made this <laughs> right. a truly hipster, <laughs> the, hipster article. Then we'd finally get on CNN about it. I actually have I have a new name for hay fever that I just thought of. You want to hear it? Uh, the wheat sneezes. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> Podcast over. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Short season. Hand on my head, chest on my chest. Be my lover, yeah. be my best friend. Welcome to What's That Smell, a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Tommy Metz III. And every week, we each drag one of our deepest, darkest anxieties into the light to share it, learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Send us the story of your anxieties to something stinky at what's that smell.net. Again, that's something stinky at what's that smell.net. And with that, Pete, with your approval, I will go first. Pete, one of the last times that we talked, I shared my hatred of ants and all things ant related. And <laughs> that was a doozy. That was a lot. And we did get some feedback, and a lot of people said, What? <laughs> because uh, <laughs> hatred and huge phobia of ants is not shared by a lot of people. And I get it. That's what makes it a phobia. But I think that my anxiety for this week uh, will be shared by a fair amount of our listeners. I would like to start by taking you back to March 10th, 1876. History time with Tommy. And you might ask, what makes March 10th, 1876 important? Well, these words, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. You're a history buff. Do you have any idea what that phrase is from? Was that the telephone? Correct. Thing? The very first yeah. thing ever spoken over a telephone by Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, he made the first call uh, to his assistant, Thomas Watson, saying, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you now. I just want to say, I just want to interject. I I speak normally, I think, more clearly than was that the telephone thing. Like, I knew that that was Alex. I don't know why I didn't say that. I should have said that. Because you didn't want to you sound. You a history question, and I sounded like a dope. I want to apologize for sounding that way. Please continue. I liked it because I think you didn't want to sound pompous. <laughs> you wanted to just sort of be like, you oh, knew exactly what it was, oh, but you was... didn't want to jeopardy it. <laughs> so you just wanted to be like, oh, is it something about the ringy dingy? Because that makes you feel, that makes you sound humble. I liked it. Oh, good. Okay. Let's go with your version. Yeah. Continue. That was 1876. Now we are flashing forward 116 years where this phrase is used. Merry Christmas. Do you have any idea what that might be from? Uh, I, I'm going to guess that it, it, a parade was involved, probably some sort of consumer parade. Uh, <laughs> it is not. That was the very first text message ever sent. Really? On December 3rd, that 1992, a engineer, Neil Papworth, was on a computer and he sent it to the cell phone of Vodafone director Richard Jarvis. He said, Merry Christmas. So. What have we learned so far? Number one, people that are on the precipice of communication technology <laughs> are terrible with historical opening lines. <laughs> None of this is like one small step for man. It's, hey, come here and Merry Christmas. Okay. <laughs> Needn't have bothered. Next, Ed, they should have sent a poet. Um, and then 
So there's that. And then number two, communication is moving very fast. And we can agree that for many, texting is now the preferred mode of communication. I am among those people who sometimes, I have to admit, get a little annoyed by someone that calls with something briefs to say instead of sending a text. And that's where my anxiety comes in, Pete. I don't know what this is. Right? What I, could it possibly Because I'm mean? all over the place. Pete, I'm incredibly drunk. <laughs> Let's do this. Fear of being taken the wrong way while writing texts. Now, because I write texts so much, everyone I know writes texts so much, and the problem with texts is that it can be really hard to get the correct tone across like you can in a conversation face-to-face or even a written-out sort of letter kind of a thing. Um, And my thinking that this might uh, be shared by a lot of people is uh, by June 2017, there were 781 billion text messages passed around, and that's just in the United States. So how many of those were yours? <laughs> not very many because of what I'm about to say. Back of the napkin, math. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, it's the fear of being taken wrong, either coming off too harsh, uh, trying to make a joke, it not coming across, something like that. There is no real name for it. Uh, but in 2016, uh, the U.S. National Library of Medicine offered up textiety hmm, and what textophrenia. Neither of those caught oh, those on. Are t- those are terrible. <laughs> that was published in their first idea, best idea uh, report, <laughs> which they put out periodically. <laughs> okay, first, just to jump to ask you real quick, do you have any kind of connection with this anxiety whatsoever? And then I can explain a little bit more about mine. Well, yeah, I, I do. and I But for me, I, I would say it, it doesn't necessarily just extend to text. It, it's text and email. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, any kind of electronic, like non-vocalized conversation is very difficult. And uh, and so I find I, I, I hang my hat on emoji more than I ever have. Right. Kind of save the day. And that's the thing. This is it's sort of a prison of my own making, because while I am anxious sometimes that my tone might be misunderstood, I refuse to use emojis non-ironically because I don't know why, because I love the written word and I feel that emojis are somehow don't because I'm about to go back on myself. Emojis are somehow a childish cop out. And yet my hatred of emojis makes me text and email sometimes like a child because I'm one of the things that I've noticed the most is because I'm one of those textures that writes out full. I know you are too, like full sentences yeah. with punctuation yeah. and not just sort of new phone who dis kind of stuff. And my use of exclamation points while texting and emailing is insane. <laughs> it's like at the end of every single phrase. I put that because <laughs> something about just the use of a period at the end of the sentence, it makes it seem somehow cold and like some weird emotional power play that, of course, I'm not trying to make. But just ending something with a period a lot, it just seems like it's it, it seems like I'm coming across Kurt or something. So I use exclamation points like an anime character, like I'm just constantly screaming. And so all my texts are something like, that sounds OK to me. Like, <laughs> like I, that's crazy. Who talks like that? And I'm cool with moving brunch. Like brunch, just relax. It's brunch. But I'm just screaming everything. I went through when I was going through texts, when I was writing some of this stuff up, almost everything I do as the lover, the professed lover that I said of the written word and how it works, I'm screaming everything. And it's actually infected my real writing as well. I co-wrote a screenplay with the amazing and talented Mandy Kaplan and Johnny Giacalone. And 
Johnny yeah. was the first one to point out that I had a ton of the characters speaking in exclamation points. Screams. And he was like, why are all of, why are our characters screaming when you write it? And I was like, because otherwise they'll seem mad. And he's like, what? And I realized that's from texting and emailing. Um, so yeah, that's it. It I do have, it's, I guess, I, because of my anxiety, it makes me write worse. <laughs> and that seems like a real problem. There's an interesting thing, though. I'm scrolling. I'm just, as you're talking, I'm scrolling through our recent texts. And and I do notice that you do uh, use an awful lot of exclamation yes. points. Yeah. And, and it's more than just the occasional, ha, uh, which definitely comes through right. uh, often. But uh, you, I, I think maybe as a result, you have this this thing where you take words and you make them non-words uh for example here's a snippet i don't yet but we'll take it if you want me to you t-o-o-o-o-o-i-o i don't know what that i don't know what that means what i got that it mean? but i've never heard that word before that was new so it, oh, it but almost feels i know like what that, that is little caginess yes uh, that... around language has caused you to evolve <laughs> right well because that yes because i will purposefully not spell words wrong, but like, yeah, drag things up, trying to make them more happy. Like, yeah, there's like, no way one. to take Oh, that. this is delicious. Yeah. This is my favorite one. We were talking about something, and neither of us could remember uh, what the detail was. And you wrote, and I'm stupid and can't remember. <laughs> S-T-U-P-E-Y. And I know I use that. I'm stupid. And that's super embarrassing, because I don't like that making E sounds at the end of stuff. But typing, <laughs> that takes away. There's no way to take it seriously or in a cold light if you purposefully I just find that fascinating, devolve Tom. language. <laughs> I know! It's so dumb! It's fascinating that you do that, and you don't like emoji. Isn't emoji <laughs> the equivalent, like, the graphical equivalent of stupi? It's so much better than stupi! <laughs> <laughs> now, that you're, now that you're pointing, I was really perseverating on this exclamation point, but you're right, I mess up words on purpose a lot. With, with like change the things or like, yeah, I'll see you later or something because just to right because that it's either that or an exclamation point for me. I got it. Okay. And and I don't want to, I, I hope that me dragging this out on the podcast is not a deterrent because oh, it's I really look forward to these things. Like it is <laughs> sure. your text, Tommy text language is fantastic. And so <laughs> I hope that you don't stop. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't do it. Um, And so I did a little bit of research and I guess I could maybe, it just made me feel a little better. I am not alone. In and just about the period part, if we go into that first, yeah. but I'm so glad you brought up that okay. other thing, because that's another way of doing it, devolving language to sound less robotic. Uh, researchers led by Binghamton University's Celia Klin. All right. I don't know if any of those things exist. <laughs> they did sort of an unofficial study involving hundreds of undergraduates, and they presented them with different versions of text conversations. And across the board, all of them got back the information that sentences ending with a period uh, across the board came off as less sincere or even cynical mm. or cold or rude than when you end a sentence that doesn't need it with an exclamation point. They haven't published the study yet, but apparently in it is they talk about how uh, a period in text messages is no longer the correct way to end a sentence in a lot of people's mind. It's an act of psychological warfare against your friend. <laughs> <laughs> 
that they're saying that it does <laughs> that it does come across as a power move. That if someone says, "Hey, do you want to meet up for lunch?" and you say, "Sounds good." Period. That you read it as sounds oh. good. Period. Yeah. Versus sounds good totally. exclamation point, which is how I would write it, or I would say sounds good, stupid, or something totally annoying. <laughs> In follow up research that hasn't yet been published, they saw signs that exclamation points may make your messages seem more sincere than no punctuation at all. Really? Granted, that's just a few hundred undergraduates in this fictional Binghamton's university, but still, I'm glad to know that <laughs> it is something that is culturally recognized because it is something that is has changed the way I write, and writing is incredibly important to me. The other thing, I looked up advice for it, and there is a center, there's an organization named Center for Humane Technology which is all about trying to help people deal with anxieties about new communication ways. And they pretty much say two things. You can send an audio note instead of a text. That's terrible. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, no, I, nobody I wants that. that. And no, the other one, that, you do that exactly once, right? Exactly. To try it out. And then to, you look, end look, that I message with, that. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the second one, quick reaction features, meaning, Pretty much emojis, thumbs up, thumbs down, stuff like that. So even the Center for Humane Technology is telling me if that is giving me a uh, worry that not to just to use emojis and embrace it. If that's what I unless I want to continue to bastardize the human language. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. You'll see next week <laughs> on my texts if I'm still writing wait. nonsense words or if I finally just press a <laughs> smiley face and a picture of a taco. Well, you know, it, of note to me, my takeaway is I need to use a lot more emoji specifically with you. Uh, so <laughs> we'll see. I'm just going to start communicating exclusively in emoji. You know, there was a book. There was a book that was written in emoji. Really? I, this is uh, this is not related uh, to your anxiety. Oh, there are three. There are three books that are written entirely in emoji. Uh, and the question is, you know, can you read it? The first was uh, Emoji Dick, the first full book written in modern emojis. It was Emoji Dick, a seven, <laughs> 736 page book, a direct translation of Herman Melville's American classic Moby Dick in emoji. <laughs> and it was done of a Kickstarter campaign. I am going to get all of these for you. Uh, I'm going to go fantastic. burn down Kickstarter. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the second one written entirely in emojis and similar characters is Book from the Ground by Zhu Bing. And the third is, uh, it, it, let's see, it's a, what is this? A Wattpad user named Yarn Store uh, published a book that isn't published that hasn't been published as a paper book, but is considered one of the complete emoji publications. An emoji huh. publication. So I'm worried about using one smiley face, and instead people yeah. are writing entire books. And speaking of books, you can get all of these books at audible.com. <laughs> <laughs> it will make no sense at all. But tell them we sent you. <laughs> we left New York City with our windows down. We couldn't see the trees and it was too damn loud. Tom, sometimes you give me a little history lesson mm -hmm. when we do these things. And I would like to give you one now. Oh, okay. My anxiety, in order to really get your head around my anxiety, we need to go back about 5,000 years when the <laughs> ancient Mesopotamians were trying to conduct trade with the Harappans. Oh, sure. Are, do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
it was uh, it was a cumbersome process, right, to to trade with uh, you know other ancient peoples when you're an ancient people, uh, and so they use these slabs of clay with seals, you know, on them from both civilizations, and they would uh, they would you know use those rather than you know melting down tons and tons of copper to make coins. Mm. Uh, they would use these slabs of of clay to to say, "Hey, we're going to trade this for that." It's a, it's an early IOU. Got it. Okay. So so we move forward to the 1800s and during the westward expansion, right? Merchants had to use coins that were essentially these kinds of IOUs, these charge plates that would extend credit to farmers and ranchers, and they would allow them some lenience toward paying their bills until their crops had harvested, right? Or until they'd sold their cattle, right? So there's a delay. Mm -hmm. They need this, you know, they need supplies and product, but everybody knows that there's a delay between the time they need these supplies and when they're actually going to have the resources to to pay. And so they would have these sort of charge plates to help help do that. That continued and it evolved from, you know, the Mesopotamians through the the farmers and their charge plates in the 1800s to the 1900s, all the way to 1946, when a Brooklyn banker named John Biggins mm. launched the Charge It card, the Charge It card in <laughs> yeah. 1946. Okay. Charge It card purchases were forwarded to Biggins' own bank, right? He was the middleman that reimbursed the merchant and eventually obtained payment from purchasers. And that was what was known as a closed loop system, right? Mm-hmm. That there was just this one bank and one charge card that would work with it. And that was it uh, until five years later, First National Bank in New York followed suit, issuing its first charge card. So the 1940s and 50s were kind of the the uh, post-war America was kind of the growth of the credit industry. Right. Now, here's me in high school. <laughs> I'm already laughing because everything involving credit cards gives me anxiety. <laughs> Go ahead. I I started uh, getting these offers in late high school. You remember? I mean, of we're of an era where it was it was still kosher and the wild west to mail. If you have a name, you don't know how old the kid is. Just right. get it to him as quickly as possible. Right there, you are. So you start getting these in in the wild west days in in high school. And I I remember I would talk to my mom as they would come these little fancy slips and they'd be addressed to me, mom. They're addressed to me. <laughs> like it's the only <laughs> mail I get. It's like this and my grandmother. Right. They and, called me Mr. Uh, they did. <laughs> and she would tell me, she said, you have to trash them. This is not responsible. Trash them. They're going to get you in trouble. And so, of course, uh, eventually the allure of the envelopes broke me. And when I was a senior in high school, I signed up for my first credit card. Now, of, of course, when you are not 18 yet, in those days, you had to have a parent co-sign. And so they did because they thought, oh, this will be great. It will be a valuable lesson of responsibility. Yep. And I already had a debit card, right? Uh, I'd had enough summer job money to uh, have some savings. But that credit card, that first $500 line of credit, Ooh. Oh, God, it was magical. <laughs> right? Yep. And I don't, of course, I don't remember my first purchase on it. Sure. But I so remember the feeling. Sure. I remember that feeling so well because I still get that feeling, right? That dopamine push that comes from getting something new and shiny. And so I did it a lot, Oops. that feeling. 
Yep. And that's what happens when you put a credit card in the hands of somebody who probably has hay fever and heavy anxiety and addictive <laughs> tendencies. Great. It doesn't take long to get used to that feeling of spending the oh-so-brief joy it brings Ugh. and then the emptiness that comes after only to be replaced by another purchase and another shiny thing. Sure. Chase that dragon. <laughs> oh, baby. So I started collecting things. <laughs> business i had collecting anything i didn't care about anything enough to collect except for one thing so i collected comics at first and weirdly they were transformers comics like Ooh. i don't i never knew anybody i think i was collecting transformers comics because no one else was sure and i thought that was a sign that could they really were, quarter the market really valuable <laughs> yeah right <laughs> I I did not keep up with it, so I can't actually tell you uh, if if that's true. But then there was rare vinyl, and it was only one oh, artist. Cool. I collected rare vinyl, uh, and I had a reasonably extensive collection of Prince bootlegs oh, that cool. I was quite pleased with. I had some great ones. I had uh, I, I had it, it was an interview. It was a single forty five minute interview with Prince that was put out by this radio station that was purple vinyl, and it was actually die-cut in the shape of Prince's silhouette. And so just kind of the middle part what? of his, How did that go of around? his head. Yeah, the middle part of his head was the interview. It was like 45 size. Oh. But the rest of him was kind of out over that. But it was so cool. That's pretty cool. It was really cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, of course, movies, movie nerd, and CDs, and, yep. and pens, Tom. God, I loved pens. Pens? Yeah, like rare pens. pens or just fancy ones. Oh yeah, ones? well, not. I mean, they're just fancy ones. I would. I I started with just kind of nicey nice pens, and then I yep. got into the Mont Blancs, and I ended up. I was the only college kid that was going to his, you know, intro to psych class with a three hundred dollar Mont Blanc fountain pen. Like who? <laughs> the I was an ass. Why would anybody <laughs> hang out with me? That's the psychological term. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the the downside of this, of course, is that I graduated college with tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt, and Oof. I was going into the heady and lucrative field of journalism, <laughs> which, as astute listeners will know, is neither heady nor lucrative. <laughs> and, yeah. and that that was uh, that was trouble. Now, I was lucky uh, because after a spell, I ended up leaving the newsroom, and and largely as a result of this debt, I moved to, uh, I moved to Korea to teach English, and that was because there was no car payment and no expenses beyond food, and uh, no idea how to buy things because I didn't speak the language. I was able to actually pay off the debt huh. uh, in a timely manner from my little one room walk up in Daegu, and that helped me a lot, but. Then I came home and I moved to the Bay Area in California, and that's not a cheap place. And you can kind of imagine what happened. Uh, you know, it's a it's a roller coaster. Yeah. So I I tell this story not because of that feeling of of paralyzing debt is ancient history, but specifically because it's very current. Even now, decades later, and with only one credit card in my name, that lizard brain feeling of joy that comes mm. from buying a new gizmo is still there, and that means not far behind it that feeling of dread and mm. anxiety that I won't have enough left to feed my family, and that feeling is with me every single day, and that is my anxiety Oof, this week. Sure. So, Tom, I did a little research. Yeah, I bet. It, turn, it turns out I am not alone. <laughs> I'm sure you're not. <laughs> 
as it happens, I found this really interesting. The American Psychological Association, you know, they, they keep score on all of us uh, anxious folks. And mm-hmm. in 2015, they uh, released a study that said that money was the leading cause of stress in marriages. Not only that, it was the leading cause of stress in our country. Now, that was 2015. According to their 2017 report, Stress in America, colon, the state of our nation, (laughs) that that stress has been edged out by one percentage point by just one other source of stress. I, I wonder if you could if you could tell me what outranked money as the number one source of stress in our country. Politics. The future of our nation. Yep. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's what I figured. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Future of our nation. So money is still right up there. And I think you could argue, you could make the case, uh, you know, based on nothing here, that the future of our nation is actually directly tied into Mm-hmm. You know, money and our personal relationship with money. And are we going to have a stable system in order to continue to work and thrive? Right. Uh, and that stress is really crushing. Now, the thing that I remember when I was young, you know, when I was in my 20s, is that I was anxious about debt and I I felt that sort of doom about debt. And it was always kind of over my head when I had it. Mm-hmm. Now they're saying that, you know, millennials, the today's me, they're actually getting physically sick, right? There is a, a trend that this kind of money anxiety is the, the gap between the haves and the have nots in this case, and the debt that they have to accrue to get out of college, to get mm-hmm. a house. It's just impossible for them to get ahead of it anymore. And they are getting physically ill in waves that uh, has heretofore never been reported. Really? This is a, a significant thing. Is it the wheat sneezes? <laughs> <laughs> it may be as significant as yeah. the wheat sneezes. <laughs> How does it manifest? Do you know? The stories that are coming up are anecdotal. You know, there's just an mm-hmm. article in Market Watch that tells a story of a young woman who's who is uh, had to, you know, go to the doctor because she was, you know, vomiting all the time and that, you know, that kind of anxiety um, came and went with her employment and uh, whether or not her employers were able to pay her and where she was living because she wasn't able to afford, you know, a, a stable home environment uh, and, and those kinds of things. And so, um, you know, most of these are are anecdotal, you know, just sure. one story after another. But the stories don't really stop. And and so in this case, for millennials, the report is because they, you know, it's reported that it's because millennials have more student loan debt than any previous generation. So they are leaving uh, right. the university system and they are in heaping amounts of debt that we didn't have to deal with, even though we had debt. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, we didn't have any debt. We sure had debt. In fact, you could say that Gen X is kind of our our generation started the trend of massive massive debt, and it hasn't, you know, curtailed. So millennials uh, are are struggling, but they are certainly not alone. And I think that's the that's the really important takeaway that that, you know, unstable and economic environment no one is really safe and, and isn't this the like a first generation in a long time that is not expected to make more than their parents that is also what i have read i don't know anything more uh, about it than that but that's that's a scary trend yeah i i read and didn't click on the same headline as you did <laughs> right <laughs> but right. yeah at risk of being jingoistic that really hits at the idea of america yes like america is just the sort of the america promise is up 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 
and yeah. to just be cut out at the knees. That's not a phrase, but um, when you're just coming out of college and stuff, yeah, that's terrifying. It is terrifying. Mm-hmm. It is terrifying because a smaller and smaller percentage of Americans are making it up, up, up. And and that's a scary right. thing. But back to the individual anxiety, there are a couple of ways that this hits home. Part, the first is the 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 money worshiping disorder, right? When you're anxious about money and and you're constantly thinking about money, weirdly, it's the anti-activity that gives you short-term reprieve from that anxiety. And that is you go spend more. Ugh. Right. You, yeah. you spend more because that dopamine push, that desire to get stuff. Yep. You feel like, oh, that will that'll make me feel better if only I had right. that thing. Then I, I must think be about being successful if I'm yes. able to buy this thing. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It can go the other way, too. Right. Hoarding is the outcome of that emotional response. Right. Mm. You you think of hoarders as kind of overspenders uh, and uh, they end up having to pay for storage units, um, you know, and that can that can go about stuff. They can just have more and more stuff or they can go and and hoard money. Right. They can just hoard their money. And that leads to sort of the Scrooge McDuck mentality. Right. Where you're frugal to a fault. Right. Right. You just you forget generosity and in spirit of that depression era mentality that right that where where thriftiness is no longer admirable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's scary. The other is financial incest. And that is a term uh, that (laughs) comes from Experian. Uh, The Experian is the uh, Experian Information Solutions. They're one of the big credit rating agencies. And this is an article they talk about financial incest. It's a form of financial family conflict where one or several family members, quote, control the others by taking full control of the purse strings and abusing that control. Mm. Uh, When you are constantly fixated on money, that can cause you to dramatically alter your interpersonal relationships. The other side of that is financial infidelity, where you're constantly fixated on money and you just start lying to people who are important to you about what is going on in the bank accounts. Uh, And that is leads us to the discussion of stress in relationships. Uh, One party is not disclosing to the other what's going on with their money, where they're getting it, where what they're investing in, etc. It's dark when you are fixated on money and that causes anxiety. But the last thing I want to talk about is a Cornell University study that says, you know what? Anxiety can also be the cause of money troubles. Anxiety can be the. Yes. So you already have anxiety. People with anxiety and depression are nearly 25% less likely to have a retirement savings account. Stressed married couples have 20 to 28% less saved for the future than those with a healthier view of money. If your anxiety makes you think that you are not going to live long or makes you discount the future, you might not want to save. Uh, And that may lead to a deflationary spiral. In your Ugh. personal savings. Why should I save for that? I'm going to die anyway. Right. That's interesting because I would have thought it was the the dif- the opposite. Anxiety makes right. anxiety make, is such an insular experience, at least for me. I, I feel like if there was a physical manifestation of it, it would be to hold things closer. But that makes sense if it's just and then that match with the dopamine push. Sure. Yeah. Spend it while yeah. you got it. Yeah. Spend it while you got it. And so there are uh, it's just really an interesting sort of uh, mesh of factors that play into this. But for me, it is constantly about 
am I going to have enough? And what am I going to have to pay for? Well, where what are the signs of instability right now that we have to get to the other side of in order to feel comfortable about our finances? Number one, how about health care? How's mm-hmm. your health insurance plan, right? Right. Are you going to be able to live long enough? This gets back to you. I, I'm not going to live very long. Why should I save my money? Well, I, how am I going to be able to provide a health care plan in a, a, for my family that's going to keep us healthy, that's going to keep our teeth in our heads, that's going to keep glasses on our face uh, <laughs> in, a, in a way that is uh, affordable, that's not going to break my home? And right. that is a very real um, you know, anxiety for those who are living uh, with this kind of money stuff. Yeah. Do you have a financial plan? Do you do the budgeting thing? How how aggressive are you in your work here? Fairly aggressive, but I don't take any credit for it uh, because a lot of it comes from my father. He mm-hmm. is sort of a money and financial wizard and guru, uh, and he got me into investing very early and the importance of planning out a future and life plans and all that kind of stuff. And so that's where I do get some of the money that I live off of is from investments that I've made in the past. Um, Smart. But uh, that's, but it it is a very privileged situation that I come from a having a little bit of money to be able to start that early on and then Mm -hmm. be, yeah, to learn the importance of that by someone who was already a genius at it. He's been working in finances and things for uh, for as long as I can remember. And he's retired, but still just because he likes to be a part of things and help and just to continue working is just a paid consultant for different investment mm-hmm. groups. So it's like the fix is in already. Yeah, right. It's right. kind of like, yeah, I was, oh, I I'm doing great. Oh, and my grandmother, yeah. <laughs> uh, my grandfather is Jeff Bezos. Anyways, uh, he's, yeah, so <laughs> I am I am an atypical thing. If I didn't have that. Uh, I would be in a much different situation because money traditionally money finances, that kind of stuff do give me anxiety uh, that and like technology, I consider both beeps and boops Yeah, that I don't. Now that I have my feet under it, I feel like I can live in that world. But if yeah. I didn't have that, that would be something that I know would remain a blind spot and would just become a bigger and bigger problem as I went. Yeah. Well, and I think that's true. And it gets back to what you were saying. I mean, that, uh, you know, this generation is the first to not perform as well as their parents. That's largely why. Right. Because we had parents who were in a position to help give us that kind of a start that that we were privileged enough to have. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we are now in in a position not to do that for our own kids. Right. Right. Because things have changed. The environment has changed. And and uh, that is, I I would imagine, a, a a significant contributor. And it, the the rules, you know, if you're into this stuff, the rules all lead back to the same place that they have forever and ever. Start a budget, write it out, live yep. within your means yep. and live within that budget. Uh, make your savings automatic, pay yourself first, right? Put your, your and, and use cash. Uh, those are, are and, and that's harder and harder as everybody seems to want to move away from cash. Vendors and providers, they all want to use yeah. beeps, beeps and boops. Yeah. Uh, Which I don't but the, do any like Apple Pay and things like that. I know it's yeah. the future, but I still, I'm an old man on my lawn. <laughs> See, I'm all stuff. Apple Pay and it's, sure. uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Make, easy. It's sure easy and magical. That's the thing is for me, because I know what my, just personally, I know what my, uh, shortcomings are making it more like Vegas. Anything that takes my money and makes it into tokens, 
where it mm-hmm. doesn't seem like money as much, I know that that's scary yep. for me. That's why I started uh, getting a credit card and stuff very late compared to most people I knew because I wanted a debit situation. And then I use the credit card pretty much like a debit card. Yeah. Use it, pay it off, use it, pay it off. Granted, again, I am single. I don't have any children, so I haven't had to make these, you know, I live in an apartment, so I haven't had to make these enormous uh, purchases yet, and that may yeah. come back to bite me in the ass, but um, no, I mean, I know that I would have a problem with that had I uh, gone on to it, especially early. I actually know that uh, in my past because my first experience with a credit-ish situation was with, do you remember Columbia House? Oh, God, yeah. Got most of my first CDs there. Yeah, and I was I was a huge movie collector in, you know, starting in college and stuff, and it was like 10 movies for a penny. But then actual, like, well, we didn't have, I guess it was VHSs, and they cost like $40 in real life. <laughs> and so I went, I got in terrible situation with them. I wasn't smart enough to, like, change my address or anything like that. And so the bill would come, finally. Or it'd be like, okay, it's time to actually pay for something, you jerk. And I just wouldn't be able to do it. And they would just start. I mean, that's like that's like the first credit card for me is I immediately, you know, my eyes were bigger than my stomach and I yeah. overbought and then just couldn't handle it. Knowing that at such a young age, that was the first time, like you mentioned about getting mailers from credit cards. I got yeah. one mailer from Columbia House and I think they're still chasing me, which is weird because <laughs> I don't think they're even in business. Yeah. So I just know that that would be a real problem for me. Yeah, it's it's significant. I, that's that's mine, too. It's it's just terrible. And until you make that change, until I was able to, you know, speaking just to myself, until I was able to make that shift and, and deal with the repercussions of it and just sort of face it and, and mm-hmm. say out loud, I'm not going to do this anymore, uh, that, you know, you're able to start slowly climbing out of it. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, the average U.S. household. Uh, this, according to Clark.com Personal Finance, now carries more than $16,000 in credit card debt and more than 132000 in total debt. And uh, the interest on that is costing a fortune to the tune of $6,600 or more. 9% of the average household income is spent on interest alone. Uh, that's a, a extraordinary wow. figure when you think yeah. about what you what you could be doing with that. Uh, that money. So um, I I bring it up as my anxiety because it's always there. And mm-hmm. when I think about money, it, it's always in the context of risk. And risk is scary. And it's hard to unravel risk and not see it from a place of expansion and see money as a thing of opportunity, a thing that lets me, you know, afford education for my family. It always it the the fight for me is turning that lizard brain thing from my experience, which is negative, to opportunity to mm-hmm. how can i how can i do something with money to help the world and 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 be in a greater place so that's my anxiety of the week and i i that's hope a big one thinking about it yeah man helps you helps you if you're listening to this and have an issue with money that's you're not alone uh it, yeah. it hurts that and texting <laughs> boy we're both bothered by really big things huh? <laughs> happy season two <laughs> Oh, 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 
Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scent of a podcast. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Pete? Because we talked about money, I'm going to hijack the, the pick this week. And oh. I'm going to recommend a uh, an audiobook and a book. I read it and listened to it that uh, if, if you ask me one of the resources that helped me figure out how to change my behavior, this was a one that was central to that path. Oh, great. And it is called The Automatic Millionaire, a powerful one-step plan to live and finish rich. And it sounds really kind of... Yeah. Shark suity. You yeah. know? It, it really sounds it, it sounds like And lose twenty five pounds. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it really does. But you know what it is? It's a it's a personal story of the, the author David Bach and his um you know, his effort to change the way he lived, uh, you know, with his wife, and they did it in a really smart way, and it's something that's totally reproducible, and you can do it if even if you don't make a lot of money. And the whole point uh, of this book, the whole uh, you know surprise ending, is that money is not the problem, people. It's you. Oh. And if you change your behavior, you can save a lot of money, and that's the point, and that's uh, that's the the ultimate trick. I recommend it. It really speaks to me in the way that I I think about, you know, finances and I think about my paycheck. I have irregular paychecks because I'm a freelancer. I get paychecks on a very weird schedule. And uh, so I have to think about what to save really intentionally. I think that mindset comes from The Automatic Millionaire by David Bach. So I recommend it's a quick read. It's under five hours. What do you think, Tommy? You don't even have to do anything. You don't even have to make any side plans to listen to this. You can just listen. I'm just going to listen to it. Like tea or spaghetti. You could actually just listen to the book. (laughs) And then afterwards, I can make tea spaghetti. That sounds good. For you, the listeners of What's That Smell, Audible, again, is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Again, visit www.audibletrial.com slash scent of a podcast. We don't pay to advertise this show, so we appreciate you sharing it with others you think would be interested. It's season two. Let them know. Let them know season two is here. Share the podcast. And you know what? Even though we're not a new show, those five-star reviews in iTunes and Apple Podcasts really help others to discover us, to discover the show. If you like what you've heard, share the love with a review and a kiss. (laughs) Coming up next week. They just had nerve weakness. You know. (laughs) When your nerves get all get all weak and emasculated. What, what does that look like? I mean, are you generally saggier than you normally are? Is there a, a, like an external kind of skin appearance? Are you baggier? You have that person drop the briefcase off at just the right time so you can mysteriously pick it up and walk away. Yeah. With no one around. That's really important. Always pretend like somebody is watching you with a 600 millimeter lens. Remember that the person that is meeting you in the parking lot or at karaoke or whatever it is that you didn't necessarily want to see probably isn't that psyched to see you either. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us once again. Today's tune is We Left New York City by Michael Shines. Until then, I'm Tommy Metz III. And I'm Pete Wright. Thank you for downloading. We'll be back next week on What's That Smell? We left New York City with our windows down. We couldn't see the trees and it was too damn loud 
I will stand on your border and I'll search through the clouds. Yeah, we left New York City with our windows down. 